This is the WFG National Title Insider Report, your download on the market, featuring industry experts, thought leadership, and what's trending to keep you informed and ahead of the market. In this episode, WFG Executive Vice President Don O'Neill is joined by Brady and Kosofsky Managing Partner Jamie Kosofsky to share best practices on disaster recovery and business continuity. Well, gentlemen, thanks to both of you for taking a time out to join us. Don, I want to start with you from the macro perspective here, what WFG must deal with as a corporation, obviously 50 states, uh, widespread operation here. Uh, Disaster recovery is a huge deal for you. It's a huge deal. It's good corporate hygiene to have that disaster recovery, but our customers expect it. Regulators expect it. We get questions all the time about what are we doing in the way of disaster preparedness. We get customers that want to make sure that we have those plans in place. And many of our customers are testing us to make sure we have those in place. I think it's important we talk about business continuity planning versus disaster recovery. The terms get used interchangeably oftentimes and just kind of to get started I think business continuity is probably a broader term about how do we keep a business moving forward from event to event, from maybe generation to generation, even as changes in management. What's the continuity in that business? And as we talk today, you know, talking about business continuity versus disaster recovery, disaster recovery has probably got a finer point around tactical planning around specific events. But uh, it's an essential part of a company, any company, regardless of the size. Jamie, welcome. We appreciate your time. Your situation well documented in our previous podcast last year, and you have had more issues since then. What's happened? We had that fire on July 4th, and we kind of looked at each other and were like, okay, glad we got that out of the way. We're glad we're done with that. Everything worked, and we went about our business, and we got our new office all set up and ready to go. And we got into the office by October. We were so busy from the volume that we couldn't do a grand opening until February. And on the day that we scheduled our grand opening, a line of severe storms came back through Charlotte and we had tornadoes. It closed the county. It closed everything down. And believe it or not, the building that we used to occupy got hit again by that tornado. And what wasn't knocked down in the fire pretty much got knocked down by that tornado. And so the grand opening ended up being a total bust. Uh, We had it fully catered. We had everything ready. And we had three people show up because the city was shut down and nobody had power. Then right after that, we were trying to get everything up and running And again, you know, you think fire, tornado, we're done. (laughs) Had an earthquake. We had a 5.1 on the Richter scale earthquake hit North Carolina. And then we had COVID. And the earthquake and the tornado, it was just a matter of making sure our infrastructure was going kind of to your point. That's disaster recovery. Business continuity COVID was all about business continuity, and it was very similar to the fire, but it was very different because instead of worrying about just me being down and just my office having to be brought back up, I had to understand what the government was doing. I had to understand 
what sector I fall into when it comes to the cybersecurity infrastructure, which has been set out by CISA. And am I essential? Am I not essential? And if I'm not essential, who do I have to call and make myself essential? We had to worry about how are we going to get documents signed? How are we going to fund without recording in the state of North Carolina? So I got to learn how to work politics. I'm very apolitical, but I have found myself dealing with the legislature in working on the emergency video notarization statute. We did not opt for an order in writing the new Ron statute and in modifying our Good Fund Settlement Act for emergency purposes. So so business continuity really, really, really reared its head during COVID for us. One other thing, Brian, to add to that, I call it triggering event. It was interesting with COVID, the uncertainty we all faced February into early March about how severe is this. And we as a company had written what we referred to as an influenza response plan back in 2013 with a little bit of a kind of a chuckle. Well, we'll never use this. You know, it's kind of one of those things. It's kind of an exercise that we're doing. And then when we started looking at the severity of, you know, COVID or the uncertainty that this, uh, you know, COVID presented to us, there was a triggering event in that policy and procedure that we wrote all the way back in 2013, that when the World Health Organization declared a global emergency, that would trigger certain activities. And I, I, I think for the listeners, that's really an essential item when there's some uncertainty about how severe is this? How certain is this? How long will it last? Not being somewhat frozen in place. In other words, are you moving rapidly rather than having the debates of, well, it's not that serious. It'll go quickly. We never had those conversations internally, or at least we didn't have them for any length of time. Once the World Health Organization made that declaration of a world health emergency, we then instituted our plan. We had a, a pandemic response team that still meets as of today, not with the frequency we did earlier. But that triggering event, I think, becomes really, really essential. It takes a lot of uncertainty as to what to do and, and get started on it. You know, Don, interestingly enough, uh, we use WFG's blocks on a lot of our um, disaster recovery planning. And I had the same reaction to the pandemic plan. I was like, really? We really have to have a pandemic plan. And one of my larger clients came to me and said, yeah, you have to have a pandemic plan. And this was back in 2015. And we basically had that same triggering event. And uh, you and I have not even talked about this yet. Yeah. But we had the same experience where as soon as the World Health Organization came out, bam, we had our pandemic plan out. We had it on the table. We have five different versions of it as we went through the different parts. The latest one had to do with getting everybody vaccinated and how we were going to handle that. You know, the interesting parallels here between a larger, certainly entity like WFG and Jamie, yours is, uh, you know, you both were out in front of this. Not everybody's wired that way. Right. And we had a lot of smaller title agents all across the country who were completely unprepared for this. And certainly whether it was business continuity or, you know, other major issues, uh, this was the wake up call, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, for us, you know, I know that we spoke back last summer, thank God for the fire because it really changed Mm -hmm. our outlook 
You know, we, we've always been very compliance minded, but we were ready for this. And um, our folks, like I said, I, I haven't seen some of our folks for a year, but we haven't missed a beat. Yeah. One thing, you know, Brian, on this subject is as far as a triggering event, once that event occurs, at least in our company, who should then start to talk? Who, who needs to be in the room having meaningful conversations about reacting to whatever the event is? And, you know, it didn't take a lot of discussion because you have people in natural. I mean, HR, you know, was a critical component because every employee was going to be affected in one way or another, whether they be working from home or working in an office or had the one-off question about medical insurance, whatever it was, HR was absolutely essential. And as we moved people from a, a work in the office environment to work from home, it was surprising to me how much additional equipment we needed. All of a sudden, laptops became a premium. They actually became a shortage because people were hoarding them or larger organizations were buying up large bulks of, of computer equipment. So we had our facilities people in those calls every every time. And obviously, then you have the practical stuff about the technology people to make sure the work from home people have the necessary you know, connectivity, that we have the appropriate firewalls, we have the appropriate data security. And then this is a business of money, too. And so do you have your banking people so that you don't lose track of your fiduciary accounts and make sure you can, again, collect money, disperse money timely? So that group, I think, at the peak was probably about 13 different disciplines. And we were on calls every day for several months, somewhere mid-year 2020. We said, we don't need to meet every day. We went to twice a week. But we're still meeting twice a week as a group because we still have individual employees who are coming down and contracting the virus. We have individual offices that are now challenged by having some of those work from home employees come back into the work environment. So we're doing that in a very, very coordinated effort uh, with that team. And and I forgot one really important one. The communication is absolutely essential. We've got a, a very dispersed workforce, even more so working from home in many, many jurisdictions. And so to be able to have a common message and get that out whether it be from the most senior people down to managers, you know, again, that kind of pushes that message down. But then you have to have a very horizontal communication plan, too. And those are blast emails and updates and kind of and we did some uh, mandatory calls as well. So the communication component became absolutely essential. You know, Don, uh, those are great points. And, and we're going to scratch the surface in a 30 minute podcast, you know, from my side of the table and listening to you and Jamie, uh, You've been through this, right? And and really, the entire industry has now at this point. Many people right now who are listening to this are just now realizing, hey, we did not have a major fire or another issue in that regard. We need to start doing this now. So I would throw this out to both of you gentlemen as to where do you start? I mean, because if you're coming into this, right, we dealt with the pandemic and we got through that, but, you know, and putting together a disaster recovery plan. Uh, th- there's a lot of elements to this. Where do you start? Yeah, we have three letters in our office and uh, they are used with different words. Uh, we GTS everything and it's Google that stuff uh, <laughs> for this podcast. And if you Google small business disaster recovery or business continuity, you find yourself a form that you're comfortable with or you go to blocks you know, the WFG blocks, and they've got forms, and that's where you start. And you have to be very 
methodical about it for me and the way that mine is set up. And I've shared mine before. I shared it at NS3 last year. Mine is a simple spreadsheet on Excel that says, here's what I've got category one, category two, category three, category four. And then I have cybersecurity as a separate category because that's something in and of itself. What happens if you can't get in the office? What happens if your office loses power? What happens if your office loses power and internet? What happens if your office loses internet only? What if it's in a five-mile radius, a 10-mile radius, 20? You have to have a structure that it's a check the box. And that is where you start. Then you have to know what you have. You have to know where it is because, you know, what we found out with the fire is, is we had to know where everything was because the fire was in my storage room where all my DR laptops were. So I knew I didn't have any DR laptops. They were all gone. And then you just have to know your system inside and out. Yeah. Brian, I, I'm, it's interesting. Jamie and I are totally in agreement on simple forms on the internet, accessible, get one that seems to fit your business. They have a lot around communication. So do you have a current list of all your employees with home phone numbers and alternative phone numbers and way to contact them? Because that's oftentimes the biggest challenge. How do I then talk to the people I need to talk to and, and get the message out? Are we open? Or are we closed? The communication piece is really, I think, stressed in a lot of those forms. And then I approach it maybe with a, with a progression of events. Most of us are going to know what the most likely events are in our community, whether that's going to be a weather event, whether we're going to have some type of an electrical outage, you know, heaven forbid, a fire like Jamie experienced. Those are the ones that are going to probably come at us most likely. And it's a very awkward conversation because you don't want to think about it but you have to force yourself into that discussion. If we are without power, you know, with little or, or no notice, what are we going to do? Cause that's a, you know, that's a, an occurrence. I, I think of the, the people in Texas a month or more ago who automatically were having issues around, you know, weather that they hadn't anticipated affecting power and then affecting water. So you not only had kind of this cold, you know, late winter storm, then all of a sudden you don't have electricity, you can't warm things and then the pipes start to break and then you have water damage. That's the kind of thinking on a disaster recovery plan of saying, okay, what's the most likely event and how do I then react to that? And what do I have in place for the disaster recovery, you know, communication, component to that, getting people working from home and those types of things, it gets, I think it gets, it starts pretty simple, but then as you get better at this, these, these plans aren't static, you know, we should be looking at them, you know, I don't know what you look at, Jamie, we review every one of our policies and procedures once a year, we edit as necessary, you know, we don't edit every policy and procedure every year, but we look at them in depth every year. And if they have the type of detail we would have in a disaster recovery plan, you bet we're updating those because we've learned something over the course of the last 12 months that we now want to apply there. So the review on an annual basis, updating as necessary, and then you have to test them. Remember when we were all in elementary school, we had fire drills? There was a reason for that, you know, so we knew how to get out of the classroom or go out and meet in the playground, whatever that was. Right. You got to test these plans, too. You can't just put them on the shelf and expect to be crisp in the execution just because you wrote a great plan multiple months ago. So, Don, interestingly enough, I'm in the middle of audit season right now, and we just finished our SOC 2 audit. And this is year number five for us to have our SOC 2 type 2. 
The number one thing that I got beat up on this year was business continuity and disaster recovery and pandemic planning. And they beat me up and beat me up and beat me up. And I'm a little bit of a smart aleck. So have you ever thought about what would happen if your office burnt down? And my answer was, really? (laughs) I'm going through client audits right now. And my larger clients are coming through and doing their annual due diligence. And the only thing that they want to talk about in thousands of pages of information I've given them is we want to talk about DR and business continuity because we had like everyone else. I mean, our problem with business continuity this year had nothing to do with the power going out. It had nothing to do with not being properly equipped. It had to do with the volume on top of the courthouses being closed. Mm-hmm. And it slowed business. So it's not always disasters. It's not always within your control. Hey, Don, I thought you made a great point with a fire drill. Uh, And I want to pick up on that because my next question was, as Jamie said earlier, five years ago, we're putting this together and we're all kind of thinking, yeah, right. Okay, whatever, right? Well, then it happens and you're glad you did it. And obviously the same was true for WFG. But the next big step is communicating this to your people, to your organization. You've got a large organization in 50 states. Jamie's got his organization in North Carolina. Regardless, it has to be communicated to all of your people. How do you do that? Yeah, there's a simple answer to that is that from a disaster recovery perspective, we ask each one of our profit center managers, it would be the equivalent of a state manager or a, you know, a manager responsible for multiple number of locations, but in one geographic area, they actually are, are responsible for uh, fine tuning a disaster recovery template that we prepare. So they're actively engaged in that process. I think it would be a huge mistake if a, from a corporate department standpoint, you handed a disaster recovery plan off to managers and said, here, read, understand, and apply this plan. So there's some of that template that is, you know, is going to be pretty standardized. But when it comes to the call list and, you know, kind of the meeting, you know, if you have a remote meeting location or, or those types of things or who's responsible for certain activities, we expect those profit center managers to be very actively involved in preparing those pieces of the disaster recovery plan. And then in addition to that, we check to see if they're doing annual testing on that. That's part of this planning process that those managers are responsible for carrying out testing too. And from an internal audit perspective, that's how they're, they're measured or that's how they're held accountable. I want to ask you too, with this planning, larger organization, and and maybe this is not uh, a good assumption, but what if someone's incapacitated? Don is the one who put this together with the rest of us. He's the guy who's responsible for this, and he's not here. He might be 3,000 miles away on a vacation or, you know, something tragic may have happened. How do you address sensitive data, sensitive information um, in a corporation or an organization that, you know, only you or a few other people are privy to. Yeah, we struggle with that over the years and we struggled with it during the pandemic. It's so important to have a culture of compliance is what I've called it since the days of tread. And and part of a culture of compliance is is knowing how to manage your managers. And it is it's my job to write the policy and give it to the managers and let the managers own it let the managers tweak it. 
and let the managers figure out that if Susie's not there, then then Sally's going to pick up and run with it. You know, we had such volume this year. Our volume was was almost 300 percent and we were remote in a paper world. And we started having breakouts of COVID in the office and we couldn't come in the office. And at one point we were down to one person on one of our teams and you have to plan for that. What we ended up doing is we ended up running shifts and you have to think outside the box. I walk into my office now, I have 30% of my people in the office and it drives me nuts that I don't have everybody here. But I have to remind myself that the reason it's 30, 30, 30 is because if one pod gets sick, the other pod comes in. As far as, you know, what happens if Jamie gets run over tomorrow? I'm a cyclist. I do stupid things. And there's a real danger of it. A lot of folks in smaller businesses have to think about succession planning Your disaster recovery and business continuity should be thought of in the same vein. What happens if Jamie is incapacitated? What happens if Esther is out of the country? And the way that you couch it to make it a little more palatable is, Esther, we want you to be able to take a two-week vacation and not take a phone. And that way we can present it without killing her off. Thanks to COVID, the awareness in this category has been heightened. That said, smaller agents are busy. We've all been busy the past year or two. Implementing this isn't an option, right? You have to do this because clients now, they're going to ask, right? I mean, cybersecurity, right? Which is a whole other topic, but that hand in hand with this, these are two very important things. I mean, it can be turned into a nice marketing opportunity if you've executed on this, that we're safe, we're secure, we're ready, we can serve you no matter what, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I I think it can be a a marketing piece. It's displaying that you have a thoughtful approach to your business, that that you're going to be here for the long term, that you respect the customers enough that you have a plan that in the event something were to happen, that you, again, will be here to serve them. I I think it's a very, very essential part of how you then present your company as somebody that they choose to do business with because you are, in fact, planful around that. I I, I think it's a very significant characteristic, and it it can be a differentiator. Uh, Frankly, I I can talk on this that everybody should have this, and, and I believe that wholeheartedly. But I also think that there's enough people that will be reluctant. They'll be late to the game. They won't do it. It can be a differentiator. And I have for years talked about compliance in general as being a differentiator in every aspect of that, because we are companies that are heavily regulated. We have a high responsibility to the consumers that we serve to protect their data, protect their money, and and those types of things. And so this entire compliance piece of it, when it's done well, I think it can be a competitive advantage, frankly. How about you, Jamie? Yeah, I mean, Brian, you know, my position, incidentally, we've recently hired a CEO, but my partner and I have taken a step back. She is uh, the executive vice president of technology. I'm executive vice president of business development and compliance. Now, those are two areas that don't go together. Yeah. Because usually they're at odds, but building on what Don 
you know, said, we live a culture of compliance. We differentiate ourselves through compliance. That fire doubled my business because I'm able to look at someone straight in the eye and say, look, you see that behind me? I survived that. I lost two hours. I lost no documents. I lost no data and I lost no money. Not one claim came from that fire and it's valuable. It really sets you apart because we are highly regulated and we're going to see the resurgence of the CFPB in the next few years and compliance is going to come to the forefront again. Thanks to Jamie Kosofsky and Don O'Neill for joining us on the Insider Report. And thank you for partnering with WFG for assistance in preparing your disaster recovery and business continuity plan. Contact your WFG representative.